When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes, and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm still just about Matt Shorty, but the voice is really bad. Uh, coming up on today's episode, we go around the world to look at the state of politics to see if there's anything that Britain can learn from other countries. That's coming up. But before that, it's time for this. The Columnists with Knight at the Marriott, India Knight and James Marriott on Times Radio. Yes, it's Thursday morning and they're both here. James Marriott's in the studio. Morning, James. Good morning. And beaming in from outer space is India Knight. Morning, India. Good morning, Matt. I'm glad you've got your voice back. I didn't think you would, actually. Well, I mean, you say back. It's better than it was yesterday. I thought you wouldn't be able to speak at all. (laughs) Well, I, I had a night not standing around uh, shouting at politicians uh, last night, and so I, my voice is a slightly better shape. No, I think the husky thing is working for you. Do you? Yeah. I think yeah, you it's keep the it. right level of husk. It is. Whereas yesterday was like, I think I think he might drop dead before the end of the show. <laughs> that's never encouraging. You know what? That's not encouraging. Yeah, 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 it, it doesn't fill you with confidence. Rough, so we're talking about um, politicians and um, phrases you'd like to ban politicians after Keir Starmer got ticked off. Uh, for saying kamikaze uh, budget lots of time. Is there anything particularly annoys you that they say, India? Oh, it's got to be, let me be clear. We'll definitely ban that with the bell. Also, yeah. every time you ring the bell, the dogs go mad. I wonder if um, other <laughs> listeners find it so as well. <laughs> well, it, well it, that, that's what happens when you adopt Pavlov's dog, presumably. <laughs> um, uh, uh, James, any particular phrase you'd like to ban? God, all of them at the moment. It's never, never, no one's ever saying anything good, really, are they? No. Every time anyone says anything, the economy crashes. So I think that's got to be a bell, hasn't it? <laughs> just shush them up. <laughs> yeah, just just, them please say don't anything. say anything more. Everything is getting worse every time you speak. But James, they're just so clever, these people running the country. Yeah, they, yeah. So as you have incredibly... You see what I've done? I've segued there. Was, Nobody knows I've segued into it your It was column. really, really beautifully done. Really? This, is, this, is, uh, this is why you're in Nobody saw probe. that join at all. <laughs> so your column say fluent Latin doesn't make quasi quarteng a genius. Yes. I was basically um, attacking... This idea that I think, I mean, I don't know, it's one of those columns where you wonder halfway through, am I slightly attacking myself? Um, (laughs) But I was attacking the kind of, um, I think there's a weird thing we have in Britain where we think if someone can speak Latin or they can drop in a few quotations from 
poetry, blame myself here, then suddenly they're kind of, we elevate them to the status of a kind of intellectual giant, even though these achievements don't have much to do with, for example, running the economy as this is coming back to the stuff that Quasi Quarting, despite having crashed the economy, lots of people are coming out and defending him, saying that, oh, but, you know, he's totally clever. He writes Latin poetry, and he's got this PhD about the um, 17th century currency crisis. And I was saying these things are completely unrelated, and we need to get over this slightly credulous belief that, you know, a tweed jacket, a Latin phrase, ancient Greek, necessarily means that you're smart. It doesn't mean that you're not smart, but I think it's not an automatic sign that you're a massive intellect, just if you happen to have studied these particular things. And but the 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 point the sort of thread that you run quasi quasi is just the latest of these. I mean, Jacob Rees Mogg is another one who can't even speak Latin, <laughs> which infuriates me. I sometimes just w- wake up and think about it, and I'm like, your whole brand is that you speak Latin, but you don't actually speak Latin. I find it very fraudulent and irritating. But he does use that. He just what he just Google's the phrases and yeah, drops I suppose them in. he's got a sort of Latin dictionary of Latin quotations or something. And then obviously Boris Johnson's another prime example who of... can speak Latin. To be fair to him, but I mean, it hasn't didn't make him much more competent at uh, and running the country. Doing the job. Um, so what should we do instead, James? Because I thought the comparison you drew with America, where they, you, you know, America, America more likely to be as impressed by a, a successful business person as someone who can quote, yeah, and I think Shakespeare at the drop of a hat. Yeah, I think it's kind of it's a bit complicated. And we've ended up with this, I think, sort of very narrow perception of what makes someone sound extremely smart. I was saying in the column that in America, you know, the, this idea that like a business person or a CEO might be like a genuine kind of public intellectual i have a voice on things i think for britain part of the problem is oxbridge just kind of gives this pervasive atmosphere of like fogeyishness and fustiness and privilege to to intelligence that doesn't exist in the same way in other countries i also think this weird quirk of the british education system where we specialize our education extremely early so i think we're one of the very few rich countries in the world that allows kids to drop their native language and maths uh, when they finish their gcse's and I think this gives us this weird idea that, like, basically any really esoteric, the more esoteric the subject you're studying is, the higher up through the education system and the more advanced your study must be. So we have this kind of weird thing where, like, if people know, you know, stuff about total nonsense, we're like, oh, well, they must be really, you know, they must be really up there because they know about this completely meaningless, irrelevant stuff. And I think that's it's, it's, a problem, it's too. It's the QIification of Britain. That's a beautiful... You should have told me that before I wrote the column. That's so annoying. I'm going to rewrite it next week with that phrase. In India, what do you think about this? I think that Latin is very useful uh, uh, when it comes to convey exactly what James says. It's kind of brilliant. Um, it, 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 it adds fake gravitas. I remember millions of years ago when I was about 25, the editor I had at the time <clears throat> thought that my pieces lacked gravitas. And he said, the trick is to bung in a Latin phrase and then you sound weighty really? and authoritative. Yeah, and like you're clever. And I did it. For decades and decades and decades, I'd lob in, you know, I had about four, and I'd kind of lob them in and feel that my argument was massively enhanced until, well, you, you know... If I you'd had a fifth, you could have ended up as Prime Minister. That's basically exactly. Boris Johnson's exactly. career in a nutshell. Yeah, um, but, but until I realised, trick, when you're writing a column, and I think it's also true when you're making a political speech, look, barking dogs despite no bell, um, uh, also true when you're making a political speech, is to sound like yourself, to sound like a person. Yeah. Rather than to kind of, you know, 
pretend that you speak Latin. I think also there's a kind of insecurity in it. I always think this about um, Reese Mogg, actually, with his pretend Latin and his pretend clothing, which we've spoken about before, and his sort of pretend patrician manner. That you, you, I, I see people do that, and I think, what are you trying to cover up? You know, what, what failing in yourself is it that you're trying to compensate for by pretending to speak Latin. But it's it, really silly. It's but, a sort of public school thing. And obviously Eton does it massively. Hence Quateng's Latin poetry. And also, why would you write poetry in Latin? Write poetry in English. It's a much more flexible and playful language. But also... And also it, not it, dead. It says something about us as a country. It's a sort of slight sort of know your pace. You know, the plebs are impressed by the poshos yeah, who went to Oxford yeah. and studied the Latin. You know, the, the, the... Yeah, it seeks to ex- exclude. It seeks to say... Listen to me, because I know a thing you don't. Yeah. You're going to be completely baffled by the next next few lines to come out of my mouth, and that is because I'm cleverer than you in superiority. It's a really kind of cheap trick. Yeah. Um, so what should we do about it, James? God, I don't know. It seems... I mean, I... I'm kind of amazed that it survived for so long because you'd think we had, the, you know, this great meritocratic revolution in the 50s and 60s with grammar schools and people from different backgrounds getting up into the establishment and it survived all the way through that. We've had all this, you know, we've had the sort of woke revolution the last few years. Everyone's saying, you know, anything that happened before 2018 is terrible and it survived that and it just looks like it's going to keep on going. One thing I do wonder is whether, you know, massively declining take up humanities degrees might sort of yeah, take yeah, some yeah. of the edge off this mm. a little bit. And actually, but... the point that Liz just made yesterday, she's the first Prime Minister who went to a comprehensive school when it was a comprehensive school. Yeah. Because lots of people are arguing about Gordon Browns because I think he had to do some sort of 11 plus before. Yeah. Uh, he did. Actually, maybe that starts... Ch- you, you know, you, uh, for all of Liz Truss's faults, you probably wouldn't catch her dropping Latin into... Yeah, although as she flails for as she flails for a strategy, maybe, that's she, maybe she'll she'll pick up my column and think this is the answer. This is how to get some gravitas. Yep. She'll do the Indian night trick and um, she'll so start just lobbing me. Yeah, well, she didn't use any Latin phrases in her column in the Times today. I noticed, but there's still time. Someone should tell her. There's, there's still time. There's still time. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the um, uh, the substance of uh, of uh, Liz Truss's woes right now. Um, India. Hang on, I'm going to let the dog out. Just go, um, go. talk amongst yourselves for one minute because it's annoying. <laughs> James, mortgages. Brody, outside, come on. <laughs> Sorry. No, this is this is this is the best best contact we've had on the show for ages. Well, I'll come back to you then, India. Morg- mortgages, mortgages. Uh, Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng, uh, maybe I'll drop some Latin when he has this meeting with mortgage providers later who've been withdrawing home loans uh, and making them more expensive. The real, I got a real sense it, it, the Tory party conference this week in Birmingham. The, the Tories weren't necessarily gripped sufficiently by the damage that the rise in mortgage rates, interest rates, the withdrawal of mortgages, by the damage that's made that brand. They think it's all about the 45p, and I'm just not sure it is. It isn't. It isn't. I think, you know, what's happening to people's mortgages is a complete catastrophe. People are totally terrified of having to sell their house, not being able to afford repayments. And her line, her constant line about help with... um, fuel bills seem you know that that sort of seems to imply that mortgages are a sort of secondary concern or i mean of course not everybody has mortgages and pretty much everybody uses fuel but 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 yeah i agree it's a kind of secondary or even tertiary concern in their narrative and actually certainly among everybody i know it's it's the primary one uh, what about you james you're a young person yeah no 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 mortgage for me and um you know, any pain for homeowners, you know, 
if you're a renter, you're like, oh, at least it's not us this time. But then I think probably it's not, you, it's not a good time to be a renter either, is it? as I've been discovering. Do you spend your time thinking about the possibility of buying a house? In a very like wistful and distant way, but not in a kind of practical, this is something I could do way. Um, I, I, I think I have a little track in the back of my head that's going, might this ever be possible? And it goes up and down and it's now, you know, crashing through the floor because of interest rates. I just, yeah, I don't, I am pessimistic at the moment. I mean, I'm usually pessimistic, but it's gone, it's gone, it's gone even more pessimistic than normal for me right now. Do you know anyone roughly your age who owns their own home? Yes, I have one irritating friend from university who did the right thing and became a lawyer. And mm. now he owns, now he owns a lovely house in Walthamstow. Uh, he does not live in a room in a flat share like I do. Can he speak Latin? Uh, no, but I mean, maybe, yeah, no, he can't. So I've well, I can't speak Latin either, so yeah, yeah. No, one's, no one's ahead. Well, he's no, ahead. No, no, no. No, he's ahead on that. that. Um, just before I let you go, I want to talk about dresses. This this row, row, in inverted commas, because you inverted commas on the radio, row, that Liz Truss wore a fascist dress yesterday. Uh, in the, Actually, she wore a dress that um, Emma Thompson wore when she played a fascist in a TV show. Have you ever accidentally dressed up as a Nazi, James? Uh, fortunate, fortunately, <laughs> fortunately for my career in the media, I never, I never have. Uh... I mean, part of me thinks, because The Guardian, I think, did this. Russell T. Davis pointed out, and The Guardian's got very excited about it. You do sort of wonder, um, it's quite an achievement to sort of make people feel a bit sorry for Liz Truss, India. Yeah, it's just a dress. It's a dress of a particular type. It's a kind of fairly form-fitting, businessy dress of the kind that you wouldn't wear hanging around at home on a Saturday afternoon, (laughs) and it's supposed to convey authority and power and so on. And um, I think it's a mistake to read too much into it. It's just a dress made of fabric that is a particular shape. That's it. James, any more fashion? Uh, well, it's a voice of common sense. I mean, I guess the sort of, you know, um, <laughs> the feminist take would be, you know, women always getting criticised. No, no one is ever calling a male politician a fascist based on, yeah, look, based we- on their dress. He's wearing a tie like Hitler did. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. I did see someone, someone, did, someone did a tweet pointing out that uh, there's a Keir, Keir Starmer and Nikolai Ceausescu wearing a very similar tie, <laughs> perhaps trying to redress the balance there. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe we should focus on the policies. Yes, that might fashion. be more sensible. India Knight and James Marion, of course, you can read them in the Times. You know what to do. The Times.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, it's not just us. Politics is mad around the world. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yeah, politics has all gone a bit crackers, hasn't it? It's just us, though. Between 1979 and 2016, it's amazing this stat, between 1979 and 2016, only one Prime Minister was in charge for under five years. Since then, Theresa May has lasted three years and 11 days. Boris Johnson has lasted three years and 44 days. And so far, Liz Truss is on 31 days not out. But despite the high turnover of leadership, we're not alone. It doesn't mean that UK politics is unique in having gone totally mad. So what we thought we'd do is hop on the Times Radio Airways, head around the world and find out where politics is going mad elsewhere. So just just to reassure ourselves as much as anything else, uh, but also uh, to find out what lessons there might be here. Well, first to Australia. Uh, that's where we're touching down, who've had five prime ministers in just the last seven years. And a few uh, few weeks ago, I spoke to the former Australian prime minister, Malcolm Turnbull, and asked him uh, whether it's all just about the nature of democracy. Well, look, we have periods where we have a lot of prime ministers, a lot of bit of a revolving door, and then we have periods uh, where we don't. You know, John Howard was Prime Minister for a long time. Bob Hawke was Prime Minister for a long time. Malcolm Fraser was Prime Minister for a long time. And uh, then, really beginning with Rudd, it became, you know, the revolving door accelerated. <laughs> Look, uh, it's just the nature of nature of democracy, you know, but the, the, the ship of state sails on. Uh, it's one of the geniuses of parliamentary democracy that, when leaders, uh, for whatever reason, are not satisfying their constituency, they can be turfed out. That was Malcolm Turnbull speaking to me a few weeks ago. Well, let's go live to Sydney in Australia now. Our correspondent, Bernard Lagans there. Hi, Bernard. Good morning, man. One of the things that, um, during my conversations at the Toy Party Commons this week, uh, the phrase kept being used, we're basically Australia now. Uh, because of the enthusiasm of Australia for turfing out their leaders at the, at the first sign of trouble. <laughs> well, Australia did certainly have that enthusiasm uh, for the decade or so between 2007 and, uh, and early 2018. Uh, we had seven prime ministers over that period, and it was a fast-revolving door, I can tell you. Um, I think the uh, New Zealand Prime Minister, John Key, quipped at the time that every time he went to Australia, he had no idea which Prime Minister he was going to meet <laughs> once he got there. Uh, and it all began really, uh, as Malcolm Turnbull said, Kevin Rudd uh, uh, delivered, uh, brought the Labour Party back into office in, uh, in 2007. I'd been out of office 11 years. He had a landslide win and he lasted just two years before his own colleagues moved against him extensively because he wasn't doing too well in the opinion opinion polls, but there were also union factions involved. And they put Julia Gillard in. And she lasted two years till Kevin Rudd got himself back in. (laughs) And then he went to an election three months later and absolutely did the Labour Party pay the price for that. They got wiped out. And and really the reason they got wiped out was because people were absolutely sick of the instability and and the revolving door. 
But the strange thing was, so Tony Abbott then won in 2013. He knocked off Kevin Rudd. He came in with a landslide as well. And then the centre-right adopted the Labour Party's tactics and started to change leaders. Tony Abbott only lasted two years. He was replaced by Malcolm Turnbull. Malcolm Turnbull lasted just two years. Then Scott Morrison came in and eventually became the first Australian Prime Minister in a long, long time, about 12 years, to serve a full term. So while there was a cost for the Labour Party of all this revolving doors, there was less cost paid by the centre-right. It, does it look like Australia's calming down now? I hope so, and it, it, feels, <laughs> it feels like it is. Uh, and it's been helped that Labor Party have, cha- have subsequently changed their rules of release so that the rank and file now have a big say in uh, in who the leader is. So that reduces the opportunity for just the MPs to decide on a certain night. Let's get rid of him. Um, so that that's certainly reduced, reduced the opportunity. And I think everyone feels like they've learned the lessons of a few years ago and want to have some, some stability. But um, then again, um, you know, I was uh, I was very surprised when Kevin Rudd got knocked off in 2007. It just We just woke up the next day and we had a new <laughs> prime minister. And are there any lessons then, finally, uh, for the Conservative Party? I mean, it sounds like constantly changing your leader and then, well, it's probably not very good for Boris Johnson, the Kevin Rudd experiences. Uh, if you get turfed out, replaced, coming back, doesn't that doesn't go down well with voters. Uh, well, look, this is really interesting, this look when um, our present Prime Minister is Anthony Albanese, who won, uh, of course, in May this year. Now, he had a pretty rough trot as opposition leader and there was a lot of agitation to replace him in the year leading up to the election. Um, and there were some very prominent people who were saying, look, you know, there are good reasons to change a leader if it isn't working in the polls. Well, they stuck with him and he scraped in. Um, so um, I, I don't know that I can take any, we can take any particular <laughs> lessons out of the Australian experience because it didn't work for the Labour Party, yeah. but it certainly worked for the centre-right when Scott Morrison was able to serve a full term. Well, thank you for that, Bernard. Uh, that's, that's the lesson from Australia. Bernard Lager there, live in Sydney, Australia. It's back onto Times Radio Airways. Your seat in your upright position, please. A shortish hop uh, to Japan now, where Richard Lloyd Paris, the Times' correspondent in Tokyo. Morning, Richard. Good evening, Matt, from Tokyo. It's nice to have you with us. So a decade, has, Japan has obviously been seen as sort of quite stable for a long time, but a decade of stability came to an abrupt end when the late Shinzo Abe stepped down in 2020. You've now had two prime ministers in as many years. What, what's going on in Japan? Yeah, well, Shinzo Abe in some ways, is beginning to look like, like the exception. I mean, there was a period from 2006 to 2012 when prime ministers literally came round like Christmas once every year. Uh, there were six prime ministers in six years, um, and it became really difficult to, to keep track of them. I remember once there was a there was a big G7 or G8 meeting somewhere, and there were lots of uh, Green Priest protesters, uh, you know, mounting a demo. And they all had kind of funny masks with the prime ministers of the of the G8 countries and they got all of them right except the Japanese prime minister was the <laughs> prime minister from the year before and it really didn't matter no one noticed it was a very natural mistake to make because they came around so quickly <laughs> now this this all came to an end when um when Shinzo Abe came in in uh 2012 now, funnily enough he was the first of the revolving door prime ministers back in 2006. And then five prime ministers later, a mere five years, 
he came back in and and stayed and he became the longest serving Japanese prime minister ever. Uh, now, two years ago, he 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 uh, he resigned actually because of ill health, but he was rather sort of fading away politically. Uh, his successor, Mr. Suga, lasted a year and nineteen days. He crashed and burned, and now we've got uh, Fumio Kishida, who I believe yes, he's on one year and three days now. So um, he's actually looking quite healthy, but you know, by some <laughs> measures. Uh, he's passed his sell-by date. And, and, and what impact does that have on Japan? Because one of the, again, whenever sort of British politicians talk about Japan, they always talk about the, the lack of growth uh, over the years in Japan. Is that are those two things connected? Do you, do you think do, a, a period of stability in politics is that good economically? I suppose it should be in theory. Um, Shinzo Abe promised great things for the economy. He didn't deliver all that much inflation. Uh, uh, unemployment was brought under control. Deflation was somewhat tamed, which was his goal. But he certainly didn't turn the, the, the country around. Uh, I mean, I think in Japan, the the key thing is that although prime ministers change, the ruling party doesn't. So uh, only twice since the Second World War have the opposition got in and never for very long. So although we've had these changes of personnel at the top, the Liberal Democratic Party, uh, you know, a conservative right wing party has been basically been in power yeah, yeah. all this time. So there's a lot of continuity there. And I think also what it it tells you about Japan is that this is a place where political personalities don't don't matter that much. I mean, people I think it's rather sad that people don't expect their leaders or their representatives to be particularly exciting or inspiring. Um, I mean, the, the sort of election hustings when the LDP comes around and has its leadership contests uh, are really, you know, d deeply unimpressive and inspiring. <laughs> it's just people spouting the obvious, even more so than in the UK, I have to say. Uh, Richard, really good to speak to you. That's really fascinating. There's Richard Lloyd Powie, uh, our man in Tokyo, joining us live from Japan. So we're back onto the plane. Times Radio Airways heading from Tokyo all the way to Rome now. Italy has a reputation for having politics, which is a bit mad. Is it a fair reputation, though? This is Tom Kington, the Times' correspondent in Rome. If the UK is worried about having too rapid a turnover of prime ministers, we'll spare a thought for Italy, which has had no fewer than 67 different governments since 1946. It's a country where prime ministers are treated a bit like top football coaches. One moment there, it's talk of the town, the next moment there, given their marching orders after a couple of bad results. Italy is also a byword for political instability. And I, and I think that more than prime ministers coming and going, it's, it's the fact that ministers, government ministers, come and go all the time. Sometimes you feel they haven't even found the TV remote or the drinks cabinet in their offices, let alone actually do anything before they're on their way. And the Ministry of Defence is... A good example. The office of the minister there is extremely grand. And I think that the generals want to kind of cocoon incoming ministers in luxury, keep them cosy in their leather sofa so that they can just get on with running the armed forces, which actually points, I think, to a form of stability in Italy, because the faster the turnover of ministers, the more the managers, the civil servants can get on with doing what needs to be done without any interference from politicians. And I think that has applied in the past to banks and businesses who feel that they can kind of just do their own thing for better or worse. And there's a very good story that sums this up. 
when the Russian leader, then Russian leader, Nikita Khrushchev, came to Italy to meet dignitaries, he was in a room crowded with politicians and he pushed past them all to greet the all-powerful Fiat boss, Gianni Agnelli. And he said to him, I want to talk to you because you will always be in power. <laughs> That's Tom Kington there. I reported for Rome. Uh, right, back on the plane now. We're leaving Italy. Times Radio Airways now hopping to Denmark, where a general election has just been called because uh, the coalition uh, which was in power there has broken down. Anne-Sophie Orlop is a journalist in Denmark and joins us now. Hi, Anne. Hello. So uh, talk us through uh, the stability of Danish politics. What, first of all, why has this election come about? It's come about essentially because one of the parties supporting the uh, one-party government uh, is so uh, unsatisfied with the findings of the commission that uh, investigated the entire Mink affair. Uh, you might uh, remember that uh, all of a sudden during the pandemic, uh, um, 15 million or 17 million mink were culled in uh, in Denmark uh, at the orders of government. Um, and there's been an, a commission investigating this uh, um, uh, this uh, these events, uh, and one of the parties uh, that supports government uh, has decided that um, that the critique uh, that this commission is uh, leveling at the government is sufficient uh, to uh, withdraw support um, just for a while, because they are likely to support government again after the elections. This is another example. If we think sometimes our politics is mad and things dramatically happen because of slightly obscure things. But this was the fact that in 2020, Denmark ordered the, 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 the cull of 15 million mink because of fears that COVID could move from mink to humans. There's now questions about whether or not... I mean, there's ongoing arguments to whether or not that was justified. Yeah. Uh, um, how stable is... Is Danish politics normally? I know you know anyone who's watched Borgen knows about the the coalitions. But actually, I was sort of looking back through. I mean, in the last twenty years, you've had what one, two, three, four, five prime ministers. That doesn't seem like a mad uh, mad number. Um, no, during yeah, during the fifty years, uh, the past fifty years, uh, every decade has had more or less just one uh, uh, person in 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 the prime minister's office, except from the past decade when we've had three. So uh, there is there are signs that uh, things are a little less stable here. We also have a, a total of fourteen parties presenting themselves um, at these uh, elections. So fourteen parties. Imagine uh, a debate on TV with fourteen <laughs> different people. And is that more? Uh, like is that an, more uh, than like previously? Reunion. Is that an extent? Is, is that is yes. that is that sort of got worse in the recently? Much worse. We've had a record amount of people leaving their parties. Uh, uh, it is it's it's quite tumultuous. And does that mean post election, given that they're now having to put a coalition together, you the, the sort of rainbow coalitions of multiple small parties, often not with a huge amount in common, that presumably then makes future governments less stable. Uh, I I suppose so, and I also think that we will not know exactly what's going on after the elections. The current uh, government, which is a social democratic. Uh, um, minority government, uh, they are setting out to have uh, something like the German Cause Coalition, like a great coalition across uh, the middle to the right-wing parties. So uh, I suspect that there will be a long period of negotiations after these elections, which are set to be the 1st of November. 
Well, we'll keep an eye on that. I suppose we'll come back to you at mm. some point as well. And Sophie Allop, uh, journalist in Denmark, thanks very much for joining us. Uh, we're there. Politics is getting mad in real time. Right. We're leaving Denmark now. We're heading to Israel on Times Radio Airways, where similar to Japan, as we were just hearing, a long period of stability has come to an abrupt end. So let's hear from Anshul Pfeffer, our correspondent in Jerusalem. Israel being a a parliamentary system which is elected according to proportional representation, therefore many parties of different sizes are represented in the Knesset, which is Israel's parliament, and none of them have ever had an outright majority, Israel always needs a coalition to form a government, and that coalition has to have a majority, at least in the initial vote for the uh, for the government's foundation, the initial uh, confidence vote. But once that coalition starts breaking apart, then various scenarios can happen. You can have a minority coalition staying in place with other parties who are not in the coalition occasionally giving it support. Or the country has to go to another election. And this is where Israel is right now because it lo- the coalition lost the majority. There were no parties who were willing to support it from the outside. And after just a, a year in power, Israel has yet another, basically a fifth consecutive election after the past four were stalemated and didn't allow to uh, to form either didn't allow at all to form a coalition or could only form very very short lived coalitions as as we've seen in the last four years in Israel. That's Angel Pfeffer. They're reporting from Jerusalem for us. So we're back onto Times Radio. Seat in the upright position. Put away your tray tables. Now. We've been around the world to find out it's not just the UK that has uh, politics which has gone a bit bonkers. Leaders that don't serve even one full term, then brought down by their own side. But does that instability lead to success in the end? And are there lessons from elsewhere? Does football offer some lessons for politics? Uh, these days, a manager can't lose more than a couple of games before they're rumoured for the chop. And, you know, Liz Truss has some sympathy with that. So uh, let's now speak to Times Radio sports reporter Toby Gillis. Toby, how are you? Very good. Very good. I've no idea how uh, I've been roped in <laughs> to a politics show, but I'll I'll give it a good shot. Well, but, but there are over... So basically, the idea is, at the first sign of trouble in football or in politics these days. Oh, right, yes. let's get rid of them. Let's get rid of them. Yes. And I suppose there are also examples of, you know, somebody who's served for a long time and then, you know, then there's like quite quick succession. You end up with, uh, well, you know, they're not living up to, you know, David Moyes not living up to Alex, uh, Alex Ferguson. Ferguson. Yes. You know, they've got to go. They've got to go. So what is the lesson from football, do you think? Uh, that the right man is... Or woman is the most important. Although, let's be honest, even more it's... so than politics in football, it's always a man. <laughs> yes, yes, you're absolutely right. There is yet to be a woman in, in any of the professional leagues. Um, but the right person is the most important thing. I think there's there's no doubt about that. And sometimes the face fits and sometimes it doesn't. And it depends which colours you're representing, to put it in political parlance. We are seeing one of the great experiments that may be, if you believe the polls we're going to see in politics um, in, a, in a year or two's time as well at the moment, at Chelsea, because they have just got rid of a man called Thomas Tuchel, who to me is Boris Johnson, because he's capable of brilliance, probably talks at a level, a footballing level that not many of us understand, <laughs> and yet also is very good at falling out with people 
and fell from grace just as quickly as he took Chelsea to win the Champions League. They yeah. made them European champions. They've replaced him with a man who's called Graham Potter, who, by his own admission, could be could not have a less sexy name if he tried. <laughs> and um, he, to me, is Keir Starmer. He's helped really Brighton rise from sort of relative obscurity by their own standards, brought them to a level where he's being talked about for a potential top job. And while we're still waiting on Keir Starmer to get the top job potentially, um, Graham Potter has now got it because he replaced Tuchel at Chelsea. So they've gone Boris to Keir. They didn't, I don't think, have a truss in between. (laughs) (laughs) But it's interesting that, because politics sort of does that, sort of big showman, you know, with the pluses and minuses that come with it, to sort of dull per, you know, there's the, 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 the jock versus nerd yes. thing that happens in politics. Does the similar thing happen in football? That well, it has big here. Big personality followed by try something different. I, I think often it, it yeah. is a, we need to try something different. Um, I mean, Watford, who is my team, yeah. who are famed in footballing circles for sacking managers. They've had 18 in a decade, including the season that they were promoted to the Premier League for the first time in in years in the mid-2000s. Four in one season. And Toby, I'm not not a huge football expert, but even I know that has not led to European glory for Watford. No, no. I mean, European (laughs) glory would be... It would be like the Lib Dems winning an election by a landslide. (laughs) In fact, it would be more of a surprise than that, to be honest with you. But it did work that year. They had four in a year and got promoted. Last year, though, they had three and got relegated. Um, But they were very different three. It's it's a mixed picture. It's a mixed bag. Um, If you were looking to football for a consistent outcome, i.e., should you always change the coach and does that improve things... Or should you always stick with the same guy and do you end up with a positive net outcome? I would argue probably you should look elsewhere. And if, is it, is it, it feels a bit like football, though, a bit like politics, that once you get into trouble, uh, the fans start saying, well, you know, they, they turn on the manager and then they get rid of the manager and they immediately turn on the next one. This sort of death spiral of panic I, w- I would say that if you change manager as much as Watford do, yeah. then the common denominator ends up being, in pol- political terms, the cabinet, i.e. the players. Yeah, yeah. And you get the same players performing particularly terrible. You start to wonder whether it doesn't matter who the leader is. Perhaps it's the people beneath them that are the problem. But equally, if you stick with the same person, then does the message get a little bit stale? Yeah. And maybe you do get to a point where a change is, is you know just as important at the top as it would be in, in, in the players. Toby, this is excellent political analysis. It's <laughs> better than most of what I heard in Birmingham this week. Uh, Toby Gillis there, Times Radio Sports Report. Thanks very much for Many coming thanks. in. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from.